It's up to you. You may do whatever you want.
that's the end of my concert for today. <laughs> Not much.
Good morning, everyone. Beautiful day. <laughs> Amen to that. Let's go over a couple of announcements here. <clears throat> oh, Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O oh Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. Hebrews 89, verse 8. A lot of these uh, announcements are pretty, you know, dated here. Uh, address for Ed Riffle. Uh, we're doing the offerings now in the offering box, and, and deacons are counting. Uh, today is our special offering for the Pregnancy Center. Are we just going to hand out, uh, put the, the baskets out and let the people put the money in that? Okay, we'll do that uh, toward... You want to do it right away, or you want to do it at the end of the service? Uh, as they, uh, as they yeah, as they Okay, just drop it right in the, in the plate there. Uh, well, don't we make the checks out to the church? Or? Oh. Make them out to me, and then I, because I'm going to take it all to the bank. So. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or you can make it out to the pregnancy center. <laughs> PCOL. Good recovery. Good recovery. <laughs> a couple of uh, <laughs> a couple of announcements that aren't in the bulletin. Uh, we received from the Lapeer EMS a defibrillator. Uh, Andrea put it on the on the prayer prayer line that I'm going to be looking for approximately eight to ten members of the church to participate in first aid instruction. Uh, along with the training of the defibrillator. They say that uh, a chucklehead like me could, could run that defibrillator without any training at all. So how much better could we do if, if uh, we have a little bit of insight? Uh, EMS will not charge us for the uh, first aid class if it's between eight and 10 people. If we get over that, they have to bring another technician in and then there's gonna be a cost. So I think for the time being, if we get eight to 10, uh, they'd be more than happy to come and not just give us the training on the defibrillator, but other first aid basics. It's been 25 years since I've had first aid training, and I know things have changed since then, so I think uh, it would behoove us to uh, try and get as many as we can involved in this. It's not just for the church, but if you're home and something happens and you've got that little bit extra insight, it might make the difference. Okay? Is there an age limit? No. No, even even you, George. In fact, we would use you probably as as the the subject. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> well, we would welcome you with open arms. Uh, the, the last the last note would be uh, addressing the communion service. Uh, as was explained to me this morning, a lot of our folks are not coming uh, right now because of the COVID, and uh, those are the ones that are preparing the elements. And we're doing some research now on the proper preparation in light of all this so that we can uh, start uh, doing the, the communion service. It's been over five months now. It's a long time. Uh, so we need to get back into this practice and and uh, the ordinance that the Lord has given to us. So 
probably within the next couple of weeks we will be doing it again so and, and just give us that much more time to get this prepared terry I think that's one of the options that the elders are looking at uh, among some others so uh, I don't know how it's going to transpire or, or come to fruition but uh, if we can get a couple more weeks then I think we'll uh, we'll have it down okay Jess did you have a, a comment or something okay Excellent. We'll get you signed up. And uh, uh, those of you that are interested, you can see me after after service today. And we'll try and pick a day, or we'll get a couple of alternate days that uh, everybody can be here. And EMS will be, be happy to do this, OK? Any other uh, comments or questions or uh, notifications that I've missed? All righty, then. Scripture for meditation is taken from Psalm 89, 1 through 26, and that's page 926 in your pew Bible.
Would you stand with us, please, as we begin our service in opening prayer? Dan, would you lead us this morning, please? Please remain standing. You take your red hymnal this morning, the Trinity hymnal, and turn to number 570, 570. Thank you. You may be seated. 
Do we have a favorite hymn this morning? Anyone? Oh, Naomi, is that a hand or not a hand? It, not that I'd seen. Five seven one in the red. Do you have a reason for this hymn this morning? <laughs> we used to sing this at bath time when I'd make them stand up to to rinse off. <laughs> it's stand up, stand up. <laughs> no. <laughs> scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Hebrews chapter 11 verses 1 through 16. That would be page 1874 in the Pew Bible. When you're prepared, uh, would you stand with us as we do the reading? <clears throat> Pages 1874 in the Pew Bible. Uh <clears throat> 
Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man. When God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life, so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Father in heaven, please, O Lord, add your blessing to this reading of your holy and inspired word. Amen. Take your red hymnal again and turn to number 568, 568 in the red.
Getting in my high chair is always fun. You know what they say? Well, as you get older, you go back to your baby days. Our scripture text this morning is Hebrews 11. Our last, <clears throat> our last study addressed the subject of being faithful in vocation. We're talking about, in this series, faithful living. We use the little book of Philemon as the model. Philemon was a master of a runaway slave named Onesimus. And under the ministry of Paul, Onesimus was converted to Christ. 
Paul therefore wrote to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. That's why we have that, this letter in the Bible called Philemon. And uh, he asked Philemon to welcome Onesimus back as if he were welcoming the apostle himself. Because Onesimus was converted. And we trace the emergence of the abolition movement to end slave trade in England's parliament under men like Wilberforce and John Wesley and John Newton. Some of the wonderful hymns we have in our hymnal are from John Newton. In America, this side of the pond, so to speak, we had Lincoln and Jefferson and others who lectured on the equality of men as created by God. And this wording found its way into the Declaration of Independence in our country and also into the Gettysburg Address by Lincoln. These men took very seriously the idea that we ought not to own people, we ought not to enslave people, that God created a sequel and we should be free. <clears throat> Today we want to distinguish what is meant by faithful living, faithful living. So as we come to God's word, let's entrust our study to him. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for the um, proclamation of the book of Hebrews. It's one of the deeper theological books of the New Testament. Not that the other books are not, but the writer of Hebrews is obviously exactly that, a Hebrew scholar. He knows his history for the nation of Israel, and more importantly, those parts of history that affect the New Testament church. There's no book in the New Testament quite like the book of Hebrews, so we're thankful for it. And we are in this chapter, the by faith chapter, introduced to the faith of those of the past. We ought not to ignore that. Everything is built upon foundations, and the church is built upon foundation as well. And we can be thankful that we have biblical roots in godly men like Abraham and David and others that are portrayed in the book of Hebrews. Moses, on Jacob, Joseph, all the patriarchs of old, and they teach us of a living faith. So that's what we want to talk about today, faithful living. We pray your blessing upon our study. Save whom you will. Honor yourself. Amen. Our text is Hebrews chapter 11. And we're looking at the subject of faithful living. First thing I want to point out is a misunderstanding of the ancients. By that I mean this text from Hebrews is called the by-faith chapter for obvious reasons. The activities of these people were all characterized by faith in God. And it's quite a list. Now one problem in reading a text like this is our tendency to particularize it and suggest at least in our hearts if not out loud, that these people lived this way because of a special grace given to them by God. We think, well, yeah, they were super saints. 
they had a special dispensation of grace. And they lived that way in an unscientific knowledge and with a little of the modern miracles associated with our mechanized age. And so, of course, they trusted God. That's a rather shabby viewpoint of people who had faith in the Old Testament just because things weren't all mechanized. In that trust, they were rewarded with some phenomenal events in their lives. Enoch was translated to glory without experiencing death. Noah built a gigantuous boat to save his family and housed the animal kingdom for repopulation after the flood. Abraham and Sarah were able to conceive in their 90s well past the age of procreative abilities, and nations came from them, as you know. But today, today, if scientists are not able to whisk someone away to heaven, and they aren't, they're nonetheless experimenting with cryogenics. Say, what's cryogenics? Well, let me read this definition. In the United States of America, there are currently two organizations that offer the chance for a future second life. Oh, oh. you're getting a hint here now. The Cryogenic Institute in Clinton Township, Michigan. Mmm. Our backyard. And the other one is in Alcor, Scottsdale, Arizona. Two places in the country. And aren't we privileged to have one of these agencies in our own state? After they die, patients' bodies are preserved in chemicals designed to theoretically protect cellular structure before being lowered into steel tubes or coffins made out of liquid nitrogen called DWARS, D-E-W-A-R-S, and here they will face an indefinite wait at 196 degrees centigrade. Basically, they're going to be made by popsicles in the hope that medical science will discover a way to bring them back to life, cure their disease, and they can go on into immortality. Say, is that really going on? Yeah, I I passed a truck about a year ago on I-69, and it said on the back of the truck, Cyrogenics Transport. So they were taking popsicle people somewhere to store them for future. There are currently over 100 people in cyrogenic suspension with another 1,000 members that are all signed up for the deep freeze. They don't have enough tubes for everybody that's signed up. So you've got to wait your turn to be frozen. This says rather macabre, isn't it? I mean, just think about this. Even newer technology is that of cloning. Cloning. A controversial fertility doctor told British reporters that he has cloned 14 human embryos and transferred 11 of them into the uteruses of four women. 
The fish physician operates fertility clinics in Kentucky. Here again, our country is involved in this stuff. And the other one in Cyprus. Now he says, none of the employee embryos rather gave rise to successful pregnancy. Duh. Well, but he's confident that baby cloning is just around the corner. His words, there's absolutely no doubt about it, and I may not be the one that does it, but the clone child is coming. And then he adds, if we intensify our efforts, we can have a cloned baby within a year or two. End quote. Why not just have babies the regular way? What's this cloning business going on? People are messing, scientists are messing with people's lives. Oh, and there is a real sense in which they are trying to play God. Because they're in the realm of things that only God can do. Or again, any modern shipyard could easily construct a ship larger and more intricate than Noah's Ark. We have vessels that sail the seas twice as large as Noah's Ark. See, what's your point? Well, my point is that people may conclude that faith in God has outlived its usefulness now that modern science is in the picture. We may even think that faith of those in bygone eras was more the expression of superstition than a reasonable act of the mind, and so we're ready to dismiss it as obsolete, archaic, maybe even stupid, certainly not something for modern-day people. That's where the world is, by the way. Look, however, at verse 13 of our text, Hebrews 11. All these people were still living by faith when they died. Hmm. Now that tells us that their faith in God was not sporadic, not momentary, but an ongoing thing. They believed in God as much for their daily lives as they did for the biggie events which are immortalized, immortalized in this chapter. They believed in God for the little things in life, not just for times of trial or times of great testing. God was not sitting on the back burner, waiting to be energized with when in danger, when danger encroached. Rather, he was at the forefront of all that they did. Verse 13, they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. And then the commentary is given in the next verse, verse 14, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own, verse 16, a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I read that account, and it is not, it is not, as some have mocked, and they do mock, yeah, they were so heavenly minded that they weren't any earthly good. 
No, these people did much good in their day. Enoch preached and warned of the coming flood of judgment. You can read about it. His sermon is in the book of Jude. Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. And in so doing, preached and saved his family and his extended family. Abraham fathered a nation of believing people who have blessed the world with the scriptures of God, the covenants of God, the promises of God, and most importantly, the Savior of sinners. But they live their lives in this world by faith in God and not by human wits. Faith in God. Again, verse 13 tells us that this faith accompanied them all the way to death and that at their death, It says they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. This tells us that their faith did not always result in tangible assets. But they believed anyway because of the character of the one who made the promises to them. That one being God. And that is the very essence of faith. Verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Well, if we can't, they're talking about physical eyes. If you, if you can't see it, can you really believe it? It's where faith comes in. It's, it's a spiritual sight. And the writer goes on to say, this is what the ancients were commended for. They saw things that the world did not. They didn't always have the immediate feedback to act as a crutch for them to lean on. Sometimes they had to believe God when there was no immediate confirmation, when there was nothing there to assure anything except the raw, naked word of God. God said it, they believed it. And the question comes, could they, would they, bank their actions upon that and that alone? And the answer is, yes, they did. But do we? Do we? And that's the second point I want to bring out that we need to be mimicking the ancients. Paul gave this testimony to the churches of Galatia in Galatia 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're all uh, familiar with the importance that faith in God plays in the salvation experience. I think we can recall the verses. Acts 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. John 3.16, you all know that one by heart. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
But is this Paul's point when he says in Galatians 2.20, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God? Or, again, 2 Corinthians 5 or 7, we live by faith and not by sight, he says. And in the context, he goes on to say, we're always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. That's very true. While living in a physical body, possessing a physical body, in this physical world, nonetheless, we live by faith in the unseen Lord. Faith in God is absolutely essential We understand in the beginning of the Christian life, faith brings God into our lives. We take hold of God by faith. We believe in him and his promises, but the Christian life is more than beginnings. And faith in God is for more than an entrance into eternal life promised in Christ. Some people stop right there. Faith in God is for day-to-day existence that we call life. Just as the subjects of our text, it says of them, the writer says of them, they were still living by faith when death overtook them. Oh! then they had more than just the faith to enter eternal life. For them, faith was not simply beginning. It was the only way to live the new life which God had given them. For the New Testament believer, we would say with Paul, I was crucified with Christ. I die to all that I was and all the ways I used to run my own life. You ever think about this? How did you, how did you and I run our own lives before we knew God? Well, whatever we did, it wasn't by divine faith. Most likely it was by human faith. Faith in ourselves, which brings me to definitions. We need to define some things. How do we define faith? Some teach faith in God as an upper tier development of man's own potentials as an enabler. Robert Schuller's ministry in the Crystal Cathedral of California was nothing more than this. Schuller was a student of Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, who propagated the power of positive thinking philosophy, which became the foundation of Schuller's theology. As far as I'm concerned, straight out of the pit of hell. It was all self-motivation, self-aggrandizement. The rationale here is that God is acknowledged as being essential to any life of faith, but essential in this sense, you need God in your life to develop 
your full potential. So there must be a partnership between God and you in order for you to achieve in life all that you're capable of doing. Call to repentance, the call to total of total inability, confessing that, to please God. These things are notably, notably absent in this power of positive thinking view of faith. In other words, nothing needs to be subtracted from your life. Oh no, you just need something added to what you already are. What's that? God needs to be added to what you are. So you plus God can go places and do things that you could never attain on your own. Is that what the Bible teaches as salvation? No, all this falls woefully short of the faith in God of which the Bible speaks and for which God commended the ancients, verse 2 of our text. So that's one error. This whole business of just kind of adding God to what you are. Still another error in defining faith deserves mention, and that is the error of fideism. Fideism. What is fideism? Fideism is faith in faith. Say that's pastor. That sounds like double talk. Yeah, it is. It is like double talk. What's your faith? Well, I have faith in faith. In fideism, as an object of faith, it's not, it's not essential. The object. <laughs> it can be yourself. It can be faith in another person. It can be faith in God. It can be faith in an inanimate object, like an automobile. It can be faith in an organization, like the government. The object of faith in fideism is not important. What is important is you believe. That's what's important. You, you, you. What do you believe in? Boy, we have a lot of fideism in the United States, I want to tell you. It is the New Age concept that wishing makes it so. If you believe it, whatever you believe has the power to become reality. Think of a family traveling up a long winding road in the Colorado Rockies in their old worn-out car. It's straining on all the cylinders to make the grade. The wife is biting her fingernails. The kids are abnormally quiet. The husband turns to his wife and he says, We'll make it. Have a little faith. Old Betsy will take us through. That's fideism. Faith in the old car will enable the car to cross the mountain. 
Now think about that. That kind of faith is irrational. It's irrational. The truth of the matter is that if the car makes it over the mountain, it will simply mean that the worn parts did not give out on that occasion. And faith had nothing to do with it. Many people have this magical view of faith. They think that believing makes things happen as though somehow there were invisible, omnipotent thought waves which crossed the air from the person believing to the thing they believe in that causes it to conform to their thoughts. That's pure mysticism. And it doesn't have an ounce of gospel in it. You can think that the earth is square, as some of the old world did, from now until judgment day, and yet that belief won't make it so. It's reason gone berserk. It's ethereal madness. That we can think what we want reality to be. We can make our own reality and don't we hear people talk about that today you need to make your own truth that's where we are well what then is true biblical faith well the definition of our text it does have some limitations it doesn't say everything about biblical faith that could be said about it but verse one is not meant to say all that could be said but two characteristics are said about faith that's biblical. Number one, biblical faith has as its object the person and the work of God. Verse two, it has an object, an object, a person. And I begin here to show that the faith spoken of is not the faith of fideism. It isn't faith in faith. It's not just faith that is somehow out there with no objective reality, no rational thought to it. Verse 2 gives an example of biblical faith in action. It has to do with the creation of the universe. And the faith part of the equation comes in the fact that no one from humanity was present at the time of creation to see how it was accomplished. So how do we know that what is seen was not made out of what was visible? How do we draw the conclusion that the material earth came into existence from invisible entities? You were not there. I was not there. You didn't see this happen. Moses who writes about this was not there. No one was there. No one saw it happen. So who's to say that the evolutionists are wrong and the creationists are right? By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. Here the faith is not in our own faith, nor is it faith in our own perceptions. We weren't there. So who cares what we think? Our faith, however, has God as its object, the God who was there 
and who has graciously told us in the Bible what occurred, and you can read about his, his statement in Genesis chapter 1. The psalmist put it this way, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood fast. Psalm 33 verse 6 and following. This writer is speaking very confidently, isn't he? It doesn't sound like he has any doubts whatsoever as to how the universe came about. How can this be for someone who was not there to see these things happen? Verse 1. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. His confidence, brethren, our confidence is in God and God's, God's word. He's not trusting his own perceptions as the sole basis for what he believes. He's not dismissing at hand anything unperceivable to his senses. He's simply referring us to the one person that was there to see it all and do it all, who is God. Then we might ask, is biblical faith irrational because it believes in it believes in things that the human eye cannot see? Well, that's a second characteristic about biblical faith, and that is that it is not irrational. It is not a leap into ignorance, verse 3. By faith we, what? We understand. Oh, the mental capabilities are brought into play now. By faith we comprehend, we understand. The world portrays Christians as unenlightened, unintelligent individuals who are full of emotionalism and superstition. That's how they view us. And they are reinforced in that characterization by the shenanigans that go on in the name of faith on television and in the faith crusades, so-called, from such clowns as Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and Tillich and Ainsley and others. And when this is all the Christianity the world gets to analyze, it's little wonder that they think that we are all a bunch of half-wits with a few bricks short of a full load. But biblical faith is not for morons. It's not for clowns. It deals with the deep issues of philosophy, and it wrestles with the most profound issues which confront the human mind. That is the origin of all things the why of human existence, the future of the planet and civilization, the reality and the operation of God in a universe of his own making, you know, these are not things for the simple-minded. These are the things philosophers have dealt with through the centuries. They come up with wrong conclusions if they are not Christians and they don't read the Bible and understand God's revelation of what actually happened. But they're out there studying. They're trying to find the answers in the soup of 
darkness. Brethren, there are two sources of knowledge. So, two types of faith. And the origin of the universe is the test case. Consider this business of of the existing universe. From where did it come? It had to come from somewhere. Are the evolutionists right? Understand, Understand something here. No evolutionist was present to see the earth formed and the vegetation emerge and the fish become amphibians and the amphibians become reptiles and the reptiles become animals and so on and so on, which is all part of their theory. This theory of origins is as much a system of faith as is the concept of origins held by the Christian believers. But there's this noticeable difference. The Christian understanding of origins is based on God's revelation, whereas the evolutionist understanding is based upon his own imagination of what occurred. There are two sources of knowledge open to us as human beings. One is revelation. The other is science. By revelation, we mean that God discloses to us Just like the word says. He reveals what he knows to us without any prerequisite on our part to investigate, to research, in order to discover the truth. He just tells us. So the writer writes, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. Because God tells us. Where did we obtain this information? Well, from the Bible. That's a freebie. We didn't have to work to get this information. It's just freely offered by the God who was there. The God who was there. Truth of this nature, truth that comes by way of divine revelation, is absolute. What do I mean by that? I mean that it never changes. It will never be untrue. We could also say this is about every other kind of revealed truth in the Bible. God's decrees to save sinners from their sin, his forgiveness and the cleansing from sin based on the substitute Jesus Christ. These are things not open for man to search and discover. No, we have been told these things outright by the God who knows all these things. Well, that's one source of knowledge. The other source of knowledge is through the scientific method. That is, we postulate a hypothesis, then we investigate, we try to prove the hypothesis, and if it holds water, we develop a theory, which then becomes the operating principle, until and unless such time that more knowledge is discovered, which may alter the theory or discredit it completely, so that it has to be abandoned by reasonable men. And do you know how many times that happens when you're dealing with the scientific method? You're changing the truth all the time. Well, not really. The truth was there. They just didn't discover it all at one time. 
So as it comes to them in pieces, they keep theorizing and changing, and then they say, well, truth is relative. It changes. No, it was always there. You just didn't find it the first time out. The world of unbelievers is used to working with scientific knowledge. It has no acquaintance with, ir- with revelational knowledge from God because science may discover something new. Truth is considered to be relative. In science, truth is relative because what is true today, that is the theory, may have to be changed tomorrow <laughs> with some new discovery comes along. But then... If it has to be changed, was it really true in the first place? What I am saying is that workability is not the test of truth. Ptolemy's theory of the earth being the center, the, Ptolemy's theory was that the earth was the center of our universe, and that held true for centuries because he was able to demonstrate how it worked. And explain the aberrations. But Ptolemy was wrong. The earth is not the center of our universe. Copernicus was right. And he demonstrated that the sun, not the earth, was the center of our system. Far-reaching telescopes proved Copernicus right. Well, we didn't have those telescopes in the days of Ptolemy. That's right. The Copernicus didn't make the new truth. He just discovered what was always there because he finally got an instrument that helped him see it. So what are you saying, Pastor? Well, I'm saying this. The bottom line here with regard to the origin of the universe is this. The evolutionists believe that the earth and all of life forms came into existence through the self-generating process of evolution. Now he wasn't there to see this. He hypothesizes that such was the case. He accepts that by faith. Yeah. But in this case, such faith is totally irrational. It's irrational, for there is not one shred of evidence to substantiate evolution from the investigative data. There's not one fossil remain showing transition from one species to another. There's not one frozen species of a cross evolution. Not even an accurate dating procedure to show that the earth is billions of years old. Lava flows in Grand Canyon know to be only about 200 years old, yet they test out as billions of years old. How they can do that? Well, they lose some of their radioactive atoms in the ascent to the surface of the earth. And so it fools the scientists. On the other hand, the Christian believes the word of the God who was there, the word of the all-knowing God who will never have to alter his revelations because of a new discovery. We accept God's word by faith just like the evolutionist accepts his theory by faith. 
But in our case, the faith is not irrational because we have proof of no evolutionary process, no cross fossils. Everything appears in the fossil record fully formed, fully distinct from all the rest. And the vast amount of the fossils worldwide substantiate a worldwide flood, oh yeah, called Noah's Flood. And explains why the fossils are so well preserved. The flood was like a flash. The mud buried things quickly, fossilized things. So whose faith is irrational here? Well, it's never irrational and against reason to believe in the revelations of the God who cannot and does not lie. The God who knows all things from beginning to end. The God who precedes both time and space. A Christian is not afraid of honest science, for by it the revelations of God are confirmed and our faith is justified. God was there. He's the only one that was there. And he's telling us what happened. And so faith in God is not stupid. It is not anti-intellectual. It is not against reason. Rather, to believe God is the sanest thing a person can do. To have faith in his revelation is to open doors of knowledge that no human being in his own can discover. We're light years ahead of our contemporaries in understanding the workings of our universe. By faith in God's word, we know more about the origin of life than the evolutionists. By faith, we know more about human nature than the psychologists. We understand more about child rearing than the child sociologists. More about education than the State Board of Education. More about proper work ethic than the Department of Labor. More about criminal justice and rehabilitation than the Justice Department. Because the Bible deals with all of these things from God's perspective. We need to find God through trusting faith. Biblical faith consists of entrusting oneself to God. In Christ. Not simply believing the biblical facts about God and Christ. If the truth be told, many, many people believe that they are born again Christians because they accept as true what the Bible says about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So they think they're saved. If you were to question such on the doctrine of God or the doctrine of salvation, if they've been good Bible students under their pastors, they would be able to recite to you the biblical doctrines with astounding clarity and accuracy. I have known people who have a working grasp of election and predestination, the decrees of God, the attributes of God, the character and ministry of Jesus, how sinners are reconciled to God. You name it, they know about it. In some cases, these people have gone to seminary or further theological education and they have surpassed their former preachers and pastors in what they know. But despite all of this education, despite all of this grasp of theological facts, 
They are as lost as the dead stone in the farmer's field. The difference is like someone sitting on a bar stool, puffing on a cigar, chugging down his mug of beer with a copy of Playboy open on the counter, all the while pontificating on the biblical doctrine of sanctification and how God's people are indwelled by the Holy Spirit and how they are chosen vessels for the master's use and, and how they are to be a holy priesthood for God. But there they sit. You may even have chapter and verse. But though the teaching is true, there is a something very, very shallow, very defective in a man's faith who can teach the truth to others and never have the truth touch him. Well, what is the difference between a faith that believes and a faith that entrusts? What faith pleases God? Verse 6. Friends, the difference between a faith in facts and a faith that entrusts is that a faith which simply knows always falls short of, here's the word, it always falls short of commitment. Commitment. And without commitment to the truth, you know there's no pleasing God. Ultimately, no salvation. Many people live their whole life like this, mistaking faith in facts about God as the equivalent of faith in God. And trusting faith is for others, but not for them. They live by their own wits. That's how they live. Let me tell you, without commitment, without commitment to Christ, you're lost. You're lost. There's no pleasing God. There's no marvelous intervention from God. Preaching the parting line can be done by any able student. Living the truth we preach, living the truth we confess to know, is the mark of God's gift of faith in your life. God never grants us faith simply to be intellectually adept at reading and understanding the Bible. Now, that's necessary for reading and understanding the Bible, but that's not why faith is given. Faith is given for one reason and one reason alone, that we might actually cast ourselves upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and rest completely and only in his saving power. To stand on the precipice of hell and to believe in God and to believe in Jesus the Jesus of the Bible, to believe in salvation by grace will surely not preserve you from the fiery judgment to come. It isn't what you know about Jesus that saves. It's Jesus. It isn't what you know about repentance and faith that brings you close to God. It's repentance and faith. It isn't believing that Jesus has the power to cleanse from sin. It's taking the plunge into his precious blood and coming out washed whiter than snow. You see where I'm arguing? I'm actually arguing for commitment to what you say you believe. 
And if you're truly done this, then having gone, having begun the new life of God and faith, why would you ever think of going backwards in your faith now that you're older in the Lord? We're to live the life we live by faith in the Son of God, and that means that you're not always going to be able to proceed on the basis of having worked out every little detail of the plan to the satisfaction of your own curiosity. Some things demand that we take a step with God that may not be supported by all the economic strategies of the world. That doesn't mean that we're irrational. It means that we're trusting God over our own thinking. So I'm calling all of us to come back to a life of faith today, a life of commitment to God. Behave like you say you believe. Your faith has to affect your life. How you manage your money, how you raise your kids, how you relate to one another, how you act as an employee, so how you relate to your boss, the company management, how you conduct yourself as a citizen of the United States. Faith is for day-to-day living, not just Sunday morning. It has to affect our behavior. And I pray God will change our behavior where we have failed and where we continue to do so. Lord, we thank you for your word and praise you for it. It's biting at times. It's very unnerving. Sometimes we think we're okay, but we're just kind of coasting along. There's not an active faith going on an active commitment on a day-to-day basis. Please remove that from us. Help us not to play church. We don't need that in our little church. We need genuine believers whose faith is real, whose faith affects their lives and their daily behavior, how they speak, what they speak, where they go, how they conduct themselves, what kind of an employee they are, how they manage their funny funding, how they act as a father, as a mother, as a child of faith. Lord, the world needs to see real faith in action. I pray that they'll see it in us for your glory. If we could misrepresent you, boy, that would be a terrible, terrible thing that if our lives were full of the hypocrisy that we see in the Pharisees in the New Testament, that was their problem. They had a lot of religion attached to their life, but no genuineness, and the people saw it. So they were a testimony of what not to be. I pray, Lord, that you will make us better than that. For your own glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity. 528.
It's a hymn on faith. My faith looks up to thee, thou Lamb of Calvary. Shall we stand together as we sing? Five two eight. so thankful that you did ransom us from the pit of hell snatching us out of the devil's hands and bringing us into the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of light not for anything which we have done but all because of Jesus because of your determination to have a people for your name's sake people that would be part of the body of Christ with him being the head and us the body. We thank you for your grace. We didn't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. But you saved us and you gave us a mindset to love 
your word of God and to study the word of God and to learn of these spiritual things that are so necessary for life. For any here that are outside of Jesus, may you draw their hearts today and grant them that faith they don't have, that repentance they don't have, and bring them to know Christ and his marvelous, marvelous love today. For their good, for the glory of God, add more people to your kingdom, we pray. Amen. We are dismissed.